Welcome to the first season of the Anglican Curiosities Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Paris, Director of Marketing, Publications, and Public Relations at Trinity School for Ministry, and overall curious person. Whether you're curious to know if this tradition could be personally meaningful, or if you've been around Anglican churches for a while, and there are things about it you've wanted to know but haven't found the way to ask, we welcome you to be curious with us today. In this inaugural season of the podcast, we're seeking to give you a 5,000-foot view of what the Anglican tradition is, what makes it distinct, who are the key characters throughout history, and what do churches in the Anglican tradition look like today? We hope these episodes will allow you to see the big picture while pointing out some key details along the way. In our first episode of our first season, we want to describe this tradition to you, our listeners, using a kind of map or metaphor that we'll use to guide today's conversation. We can think of no better metaphor than the family dinner table. Today, we'll explore who's sitting at this metaphorical table, what surrounds it, supports it, what's considered the main meal, and what are just the delicious side dishes. Of course, this is not the same as the Lord's table that we come to in worship each week. Discussion of that table is for another episode, at least. Which brings me to our guest today. I am delighted to introduce to you our guest and companion in sharing with us this family meal, the very Reverend Dr. Lori Thompson, Dean President of Trinity School for Ministry. And we know him around here as just Lori. Lori received his Doctor of Ministry from Trinity in 2001 and has served this campus as a faculty member and dean for the last 25 years, after serving as a rector in Connecticut. And we may be biased, but we know his depth of experience, commitment, and network of relationships across the Anglican Communion indeed make him the best guest to be sharing with us today. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kristen. Glad to be with you. It's so wonderful to have you here. So we're just going to jump right in and explain to everybody how we're going to go about this conversation today. So I thought that a great way to set up a visual metaphor of guiding us through what the Anglican tradition is, is to think about that big family gathering, that big family meal. So Lori, let's just start out with imagining for ourselves this beautiful meal, all these people gathered around, and this table sits upon something. It sits upon a foundation. What do you think is the floor or the foundation that the Anglican tradition sits on? That's a fabulous question, Kristen. And um, I would love to jump in and say that the nature of relationships is paramount importance in understanding the foundation of Anglicanism. So your your metaphor really works powerfully because relationships have and always will be a very key piece of understanding what Anglicanism is. The foundation, I think, goes back to the hard work and thoughtfulness of Thomas Cranmer, um, who was relational in a sense, um, but he was uh, concerned to address reform in the church at a time that would uh, avoid some of the errors that he saw, I think, in the European Reformation, the Continental Reformation. Um, and so the, at the same time, he wanted to embrace and engage the, the strengths um, of, of the reform movement. What were they? Uh, first and foremost, I think he saw a passion for the authority of Scripture. One of the mistakes that I think historians and people have made, and particularly Protestants in general have made, is the notion that uh, the medieval church was anti-scripture and was purely uh, superstition and um, bizarre medieval practices. Uh, There's a wonderful book written by Eamon Duffy called Stripping the Altars. And... uh, I'm not a fan of the second half of the book. I think he catches himself in his own logic. Um, but in the first half of the book, he goes to pains to illustrate that the church in the medieval period, in medieval England particularly, um, had a much higher level of respect for the authority of Scripture and even for the finished work of the cross. 
than many have portrayed in subsequent uh, historical writings. So he's he's writing an apologetic to say that the, um, the, the, the medieval Catholic Church of England was not nearly as uh, superstitious and unreformed as, as they've been caricatured. At the same time, it has to be acknowledged, and Cranmer was the one who wanted to address some of the um, the weaknesses of the church at the time. And he looked and, and embraced, I think, Catholic form and tradition and didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, so he tried to figure out and discern carefully what from tradition he could, could affirm uh, and at the same time bring in a new wave of, of reform. And what, what was the nature of that reform? Well, first and foremost, it was a desire and a passion to see the scriptures taught. And this was the time and the period where the excitement about people actually having access to Scripture uh, was growing, and he wanted to encourage and and uh, celebrate that. Thus, his requirements and encouragement that every parish church have a, a, a Bible literally chained to the lectern so that it was there and accessible for people. Um, so that was one key thing. The second thing that uh, he wanted to embrace was the corporate reading of Scripture, not just the private reading of Scripture, uh, but to encourage and, and celebrate the fact that as we discern Scripture together in worship, and this is a really key issue in Anglicanism, that we listen to what the Spirit's saying to the church together in worship. And that's the context where we receive the Word of God and embrace it and, and engage it into our lives which, again, is different, and even on the continent, um, there were episodes and, and situations um, where individualistic uh, readings of Scripture and individuals went off uh, without the corporate discernment, without the uh, mind of the body, and they had their own individual revelations and did some, some strange and, and uh, inappropriate things. Um, so. The, Cranmer was concerned about the corporate dimension. He also was concerned about affirming the truths that had always been part of the one true Catholic Church, not least of which was the finished work of Christ on the cross. And um, he was concerned to teach the implications of what Christ had done on the cross. And as you can see in the subsequent 39 articles, um, that there was a, a, a great desire to lay down clearly what was going on, and then that was further expanded by the Book of Homilies. Um, so he wanted to reinforce what had always been true, but to put an emphasis on it. The other aspect was, of course, justification by faith, and he wanted to see a, a church that really embraced that core truth and proclaim a message of grace, not just of um, um, a legalistic or um, moralistic uh, ladder. Uh, so he didn't want the family always climbing the ladder. Uh, he wanted the family celebrating together the finished work of Christ um, as a family rather than um, um, the image I would use would be a, a disapproving mom at the table smacking hands because the, the rules of the manners of the table weren't being respected. The, the tone that he wanted to set for the foundation of the table, to use your metaphor, would be one of we're coming together to celebrate as a family together. And we celebrate the truth of Scripture. We celebrate the truth of God's graciousness and his grace to us, um, at the same time enjoying our fellowship and inspiring and encouraging and stimulating one another uh, to good works, um, as Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 10. Um, he wanted to see an ongoing commitment to sanctification. There's one other thing that he was passionate about, and this is perhaps best discussed in um, Ashley Null's book, uh, Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance, where he discusses the um, two uh, paintings by Jean Mignon, and one is the myth of Actian, the, the, uh, the Greco-Roman um, myth uh, about... Um, the, the goddess who's looked upon um, by Actaeon uh, lustfully, and when she sees that, she turns him into a stag in punishment. Um, and 
the other uh, lithograph that he he uh, describes is the creation of Eve and the beautiful uh, piece by Jean Mignon. Jean Mignon was a popular artist of that period, and in that um, painting, he he does a beautiful t- depiction of the creation of Eve. This becomes significant and connected to Cranmer in Cranmer's portrait uh, that was done, uh, Ficca's portrait of Cranmer sitting there, much like his predecessor had sat for a portrait years before. Um, the only thing that's significantly different are the books that are on the table and also a kind of a wall hanging that's over his right shoulder. And that that is kind of a bizarre mythological mask of some sort over his shoulder. When Wareham was, was portrayed, there was a crucifix there. And in uh, Cranmer's portrait, there's this funny-looking mask a, as well as a, a voluptuous-looking naked woman right underneath that. And Ashley Knoll was fascinated by this and, and did the research uh, on where this came from and identified two of those pieces as being in those two lithographs, well, one from um, the creation of Eve and one from the myth of Actian. Why would Cranmer do such a thing, he asks, um, and, and what would be the significance in this portrait, which is going to be his final statement? What he concludes in his book, and I recommend his book uh, if you want to go into detail, but he basically concludes that the doctrine of creation was something that he felt so very strongly about that he wanted to make a statement and to have the allusion to, uh, on the one hand, the concupiscence of Actaeon, but on the other hand, the creation of Eve. And Null concludes that the message there is that he was affirming a doctrine of creation that uh, was was, um, expressed in in marriage. And he was opposing the medieval system of requiring celibacy of the the clergy and the priests. so his his point and his message, as, as Noel understands it, is that he really wanted to affirm God's doctrine of creation that he gave us and felt that's one area where the medieval church had, had, had missed the storyline a little bit. And so he was not only subtly but actually very explicitly making a statement about how important the doctrine of creation is and how important marriage is and um, wanted to have that in his portrait. So those are the elements that I would see would be the foundation floor of our, our family meeting, as it were, the authority of Scripture and upholding and teaching the Scripture, teaching the finished work of, of Christ on the cross and the graciousness of God and calling us unto it. Um, and, and then thirdly, the doctrine of creation, where God is redeeming not only us as individuals, but is redeeming the patterns of our social life and all of the world together. Um, so those would be, I think, the three foundation floors that I see in Cranmer. Thank you, Lori. You know, I think um, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, Ashley Null. We will be speaking with him for an upcoming episode in this season. So everybody stay tuned for that conversation where we dive even deeper into Ashley's exploration of Cranmer's life, work, and ministry. Um, so now that we've kind of, you know, looked at what the table is, what the table is setting on, who is sitting around the table. So, um, you know, clearly you've already mentioned Cranmer. Who else are uh, the the notable characters or maybe people groups that you would see gathered around this large family table of the Anglican tradition? Mm, wonderful question. And that that is one where there has been change and growth in Anglicanism more than any other. Um, because the participants have become global rather than English. In the early 16th century, the, the, the family was English, and, and that was right, right. Um, somewhat of an exclusive group. Um, that's changed, and now the worldwide Anglican communion um, goes around the globe. And even here at Trinity School for Ministry, we have a wonderful connection in so many places, whether we have friends in Nigeria, we have friends in Alexandria, we have friends in the Arctic Circle, we have friends in Chile, we have friends in Myanmar, we have friends in Pakistan, uh, we have friends in Uganda, we have friends in Kenya. Uh, Even as recently as last night, I was downtown Pittsburgh, 
and saw a little display in in the uh, square, and it was a Kenyan woman a missionary. And within 30 seconds, we were engaging in some of the friendships and partnerships that we knew together, and uh, it was fabulous. But that's that that defines Anglicanism today. The the party has expanded, and um, it's gone from this somewhat um, circumspect English world into a global pattern. Um, I was down visiting with friends down at Asbury Seminary, uh, which comes out of the Methodist tradition, uh, which has Anglican yeah, roots for exactly. sure. Exactly. Um, but what was what was fun though was we asked them what most excited them about the Anglican movement today, and and what what concerned them, and they they were very honest. They said nothing concerned them. They loved the movement. They loved what was happening, um, and they said for all the good reasons that we share the the. Um, concern for spiritual formation, the concern for knowledge of Scripture, the concern for reviving churches and bringing Christ alive in, in communities. They said the one thing we had that they didn't have was a non-patronizing attitude towards the majority world. And I was a little bit startled by that. But they said, we've been watching you and your relationships uh, Joss Nigeria is shaping you as much as you're shaping Joss Nigeria. And that is true. And I think that's something that's evolved in recent years. By recent years, I mean the last century or so, where the expansion of the Anglican identity has gone global. Some of that, honestly, would be attributed to um, a colonial pattern back of the previous century. But it's changed now. And as countries have developed their own independence and their own identities and strength, um, it's in turn become a major leadership function to the rest of, of Anglicanism. There are more Anglicans worshiping on a Sunday morning in Nigeria than all the rest of the uh, um, Anglican world across the globe. Um, so this is making a difference, and they're becoming as much thought leaders as vice versa. So the uh, family has expanded. Um, the other uh, aspects of the family, um, there's a, a short little book by Gerald Bray called Anglicanism, um, a reformed Catholic tradition. And Gerald Bray is the recently retired um, professor down at Beeson. And um, Bray discusses kind of the distinctives of Anglican identity. And um, one of the things that he, he points out there is that um, – a reformed Catholicism is really a very real part of what Anglicanism is. So uh, it's part of a Western tradition. Uh, it's, not, um, uh, it's not Roman Catholic because we had distinctives. And he talks about the distinctives where we had concern about their piety around Mary, their piety around the saints, uh, intermediary things that were not primary matters or issues of faith, but Anglicans parted ways on, on, on various teachings such as that, but still wanting to be part of the Catholic family and, and at the same time. So both Protestant and Reformed in that sense, um, but also very Catholic. So um, we used to use a lot of the language about the middle way uh, between the Puritan models and the Catholic models, but I think it's actually more deep and more profound than that. Uh, the identity, uh, and Bray talks about this, is the identity of Anglicanism is deeply rooted uh, in a sense of tradition and the tradition of the church. Um, but it's also deeply rooted in a desire to reform where we've gone off from the early patterns and, and biblical teachings and um, early, earliest teachings of the church, calling the church back to reform and, and is typically characterized by what we call the reformed tradition. Um, so he, he, he would say that the, um, the, the, there's a real need there to have both at the table. Um, and then the third piece of that would be the Orthodox or Eastern tradition. And we've always had very warm and, and, and profound connections to the Eastern church. Many people aren't aware of this. Um, one of the key voices in this, ironically, was John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin had deep respect uh, for the Eastern tradition and particularly their respect for resurrection and for the Holy Spirit. Um, these were things that he thought were important to embrace. So um, the Anglican family 
historically has been both Catholic and Protestant, uh, Eastern and Western, um, and now in more recent fashion, um, really global and, and interconnecting the different cultures, which um, has, has presented certain challenges, particularly when your primary, to use your metaphor, meal card is the 1662 prayer book which culturally is, is not particularly uh, connected to the wider global world. Um, uh, sure not. World. And mm-hmm. um, so that, that in the matter of liturgy, um, I, I would resist. And, and I've, I've been troubled by some of the recent books that talk about liturgy as the thing that unites the, the global identity. I don't think that's accurate um, because in the different cultures as – the 1662 prayer book has been reinterpreted and, and made uh, appropriate to the cultures and the contexts of everywhere from New Zealand to Kenya. Um, they had different interpretations, and um, I would say not on core or essential doctrinal issues, but on secondary issues, there's been a breadth and a, a diversity. I think is welcomed in Anglicanism. And so in order to keep that table wide and broad, we need to know what's important and what's not. And um, uh, I, for one, uh, one of the tensions when the 2019 Book of Common Prayer was being written, one of the uh, hot points of discussion was many American parishes love the Kenyan prayer book, um, uh, our our worship. Um, And... um, but they've taken some, some angles and approaches that have made the wider ecumenical consensus a little bit nervous. Um, so they had to make a decision whether or not we were going to give the Kenyan option, and they chose not to just because they wanted to have um, a more unified single pattern. Um, but uh, many of us, and I'm one of them, still love the Kenyan option and uh, think that they've done a wonderful job with their liturgy and, and – uh, feel that many parts of it are things that can help us and inform us and and guide us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Are you a pastor or a lay person who's looking to sharpen your skills? Are you a student who needs a few extra credits? Are you thinking to yourself, what am I going to do this summer? If you answered yes to any of these, then consider Trinity School for Ministry this June. We have something for everyone. The Book of Acts with Bishop Grant Lamarcon, Unlocking the Power of Intercultural Worship with Andy Piercy and Friends, Art and the Gospel with the Reverend Sean and Kate Norris, Experiencing Alzheimer's with Dr. Carol Harold. Also back again this year is the Robert Weber Center's Ancient Evangelical Future Conference. The special guest speaker is Dr. Paul Metzger, and he will be speaking on a resilient church for traumatic times, biblical, theological, and cultural reflections. Our classes are being offered at our campus in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, over the course of June 6th through the 17th, 2022. You can learn more about these or any of the classes we're offering this June term. Check out our website at tsm.edu interterms. We hope to see you there. So it seems like you're talking a lot about um, contextualizing, and um, we contextualize liturgy, you know, to different cultures into different times, which I think kind of segues into my next question. Back to the you know the visual of the meal, um, you know, what's served on the meal is is can be a very contextual thing. You know, what do people want to eat? What do people like to eat? Um, so let's start with um, the main dishes on the meal, you know, like the big meaty proteins. Um, what what would you describe that um, in our tradition, the things, the really important meaty things that we as a tradition take part in um, both now and maybe uh, historically. Yep. Well, no question. The, the primary protein would be deep and thoughtful biblical teaching and teaching in the context of what the church has understood the Scripture to be saying and how the Scripture points to, to Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my colleagues, Don Collett, uh, has just written a book 
and I think it's a fabulous little book, um, and it talks about the figural understanding. And this is one way to read scripture, but I find it so helpful. Um, at first, I resisted it when it first began to be articulated from a group of scholars at Yale, and um, I remember a particular Brevard Childs was the lead voice in this. And he argued that we could not read Scripture without reading what the church understood the Scripture to be saying. And at first that felt evasive to me. Um, but as I began to understand what he was saying, he was saying that the, the reason and the way in which the canon was evolved and how the Bible and the biblical writings became uh, codified as authoritative had a lot to do with the church's understanding of what the scriptures were pointing to. And of course, they were pointing to Christ. And so that became a very key criteria. One cannot read the scriptures and isolate them away from that question. Why, for example, is the Song of Solomon in the, the, the Bible? And scholars have waxed eloquent and had many different takes on that. Um, but the simple reality is the church was committed to the fact that this book spoke metaphorically of Christ. And um, you can't avoid that. So I think the primary protein of, of, of Anglicanism has got to be that the teaching and the whole canon of Scripture. And uh, right in the front of the 1662 Bible is articulated what books are in the Scriptures um, and how we use the apocryphal readings, which were not considered the core, but at the same time edifying and, and upbuilding. Um, so there really was a whole pattern of how you read Scripture and uh, what what its importance is. And as I mentioned earlier, Cranmer wanted those Bibles chained to every lectern in every parish church. Um, so that would be the core protein. The other would be the grace of God. Um, again, uh, as I've said, Eamon Duffy would argue that it's been over-caricatured, that there's kind of a, um, a steps of righteousness to, to God's grace in the medieval pattern, um, and I think he's right in that. But at the same time, there, there, there's always a creeping and um, insistent moralism that comes up in the church. It started, uh, Paul was fighting it when he wrote Galatians, um, and that hasn't changed. And um, uh, one of my predecessors here at Trinity, that was a man who was passionate with the doctrine of grace, and, and uh, he and I used to talk about, uh, he would look at, at things I wrote and said, well, Laurie, that's a little musty. And I said, what do you mean by musty? He said, you keep saying you must do this and you must do that. He said, watch out for that because that's uh, uh, damaging. It's one thing to call people to holiness, but don't do it in a way where you're just laying more law rather than proclaiming the grace of God. And I've been very grateful for his influence on me in that way that uh, I hold that meter up to check when I write something and say, how many, how many times does the word must show up in this sermon or in this talk? Um, and it's frankly quite revealing sometimes when you uh, can use that, that lens. That's a great simple rule. It, it helps. It really does. And um, because when you, when you preach the mustiness, it lays people with condemnation rather than encourage them into righteousness. And uh, so I, I think he was very helpful. But um, so I, I would think the grace of God would be another major protein piece. And, and justification and sanctification together also would be something that would be protein, that, that we rejoice that God has reached out to us and in his mercy saved us as unworthy beings. We don't understand it. We don't know why. But we know we're called to celebrate and to give thanks in response. Um, but at the same time, uh, that's followed by the ongoing saving work of God in us as he saves us into his character and keeps drawing us into his character. And so whereas some expressions of Protestantism have, have been loath to even mention that part of the piece, uh, Anglicanism has always said, no, that's, that's a great part of it. Um, I love the colics that Grammar wrote, and I've gone through them very carefully, and it still concerns me that most of them talk about growth and holiness, and few of them talk about the graciousness of God in saving us. Um, so that, that lingering moralism is still a little bit there in Anglicanism, and I think we need to keep challenging that. 
um, because I think it's very hard to call people to holiness unless you're really celebrating what Christ did for us on the cross and his graciousness in calling us unto himself. Um, so I, I would think part of the protein of the meal, too, is keeping those two in tension, uh, in dynamic tension, and um, letting them work together and not against each other. Absolutely. Yeah. So in contrast, what are the like the side dishes of the meal? You know, they're bountiful. You can pick and choose whatever you like. It doesn't destroy the experience of the meal if you have some and not the other. What are those aspects of uh, this tradition that you describe for us? Very important. Um, we went, as I mentioned, we went downtown for a meal in Pittsburgh last night, and uh, I ordered the halibut. Um, fish is fish. Nothing really different about it from meal to meal. What's different about it is how it's embellished and how it's seasoned and how uh, what, what surrounds the halibut on the plate. So I remember as they, they brought it last night, I was curious as to how it would be presented and what would be on the halibut and what it would look like and, and so forth. This is where people get really impassioned about Anglican identity uh, and and we have to be cautious that we forget that halibut is the main course. Um, no side uh, item samplers here in the Anglican tradition, folks. That's no right. side item samplers. But having said that, there are some distinctives. Absolutely. And I think there's distinctives that are, are, are characteristic of Anglicanism and that we can celebrate. First of all is a deep and profound reverence uh, in worship. Um, and uh, I know in my early days of ordination, I came and I was a firebrand evangelical, and I wanted to keep things as austere and simple as possible. And, and I don't think I was entirely wrong. I think simplicity is an Anglican value. Um, but having said that, not simplicity at the cost of irreverence or sloppiness. Uh, we used to joke uh, when I was a new disciple and we joked about Anglicanism caring more about whether you had the right salad fork or um, um, than, than, than core issues. But Anglicanism does care about the right salad fork in a sense, and I'm perhaps pushing that metaphor a little too far. But the sense of reverence in worship. Um, there's a, another book that's come out quite recently, and I think it's a fabulous little book, and I really commend it to people, um, by um, Michael Jensen, the son of Archbishop Peter Jensen. And my, Michael talks about the uh, Reformation Anglicanism in the context of worship. And he talks about how worship in, in the approach to worship is such an important part of, of uh, Anglicanism. And he talks about what we've already referred to here about the importance of the authority of Scripture and teaching Scripture on the one hand and, and teaching grace um, and how important that is. But he also talks about the, the place of music and the place of, of, of corporate worship together in, in a way that is dignified, historic, um, and ancient, but at the same time relevant to the culture of its times. And informed by the scriptures. And informed by the scriptures. Absolutely right. And so we're, we're not embarrassed that uh, beauty is a gospel thing. And, and Anglicans believe that beauty is a gospel thing. And where other parts of the body of Christ, I think, have been, I don't want to say they're irreverent, um, although in times that certainly has been true, but careless and sloppy and not beautiful. And um, we, we value the nature of presenting the Word of God, the revelation of God in the context of worship that is honoring um, I, uh, my wife is a royalist, top to bottom, and she had an experience uh, of, of running into uh, the royals uh, one day at um, um, up in Wales at St. David's Cathedral, and she got a chance to uh, greet them and speak with the royals. And um, it was a great thrill for her, but it was a mo moment that was profound for her. I mean, first of all, she's a royalist fan, so that's part of it. But, but it was also just a sense that there is a royalty to be honored. And Anglicanism has always celebrated the fact that we have a king in Christ Jesus. And we have a worship that presents the king to the people. And we want to honor him 
and and again to go back to your your meal image, it's not just a carry out meal. It's a meal that has dignity and sit down and we've put on our best clothing, we've put on our best habits, and we want to honor the head of the table. Uh, Because Christ calls us to be a royal priesthood, all of us. Absolutely right. And we need to really honor the king. And, And so I think part of Anglican identity and tradition here is that we do it in a beautiful way. Is that the protein? No, but it is the presentation. And we value in Anglicanism... Uh, as I say, reverence and worship and respect and thoughtfulness. Um, the, one of the great things uh, over the years that has surfaced was the issue of whether or not Anglicans believe in extemporaneous prayer. And I remember one of my noble and, and um, uh, strong leaders in the House of Bishops was Jeffrey Rothorn, and he was a good liturgist. And one day he, he talked to me and he said, well, Laurie, your generation is, is much more comfortable with extemporaneous prayer than mine. And he said, it's not that I don't believe in extemporaneous prayer, but I'm a little nervous about talking in a sloppy way to the king of the universe. And, and that's why I kind of prefer thoughtful colics and careful liturgies uh, rather than just dumping my emotions and verbiage uh, in the Lord's presence. And that really made me think. And again, he wasn't condemning me for my love for extemporaneous prayer, but he did make me think about it. And he made me thought about the way I speak to my Lord and my Savior. And there's a time to be informal and and um, intimate. But in corporate worship, in corporate conversation, at the meal itself, it's important to be very careful the words we use. Um, and this is where Cranmer was so thoughtful when he pulled together the early prayer books. And um, he and Butzer and uh, Alasco and others um, that worked hard to have dignity and beauty in, in the words. Even uh, in the, uh, the one prayer book, you have the shape uh, of almost a Christmas tree in one prayer. It's the general Thanksgiving, I believe. Um, and, and even the shaping of how they printed the, the prayer books was significant to them. They wanted it to be a thing of beauty. And when I talk to many of my Protestant uh, friends in various denominations and expressions, they all kind of admire us, and they're a little bit jealous of the beauty and the dignity uh, in our prayer books that sometimes are not as evident in their traditions. So I would say all those things are, are the presentation issues and the salad course and the, uh, the vegetables. Uh, they're, not, they're not the core essentials, but they are important. And they're important because we want to give reverence to the king. Absolutely. Yeah. So you kind of referenced, like, you know, the salad forks and stuff like that. But let's tease out a little more this idea of what our um, – you know, what are the essential tools and utensils that we use day in and day out to serve the meal? Because, you know, you can't get – it's one thing to look at this beautiful meal, but, you know, it has to be facilitated to us in our everyday lives. Um, so what would you describe those things um, in our in our tradition? Well, we do have to set the table with certain essential things, and Cranmer wrestled with that. Because in the medieval period, the monastic communities were uh, doing seven or eight stations of prayer throughout the day. And he thought that was impractical for the 16th century modern-day England. So what were the essential things to have on the table? He said, let's start the day in prayer and listening to Scripture. And let's end the day in prayer and listening to Scripture. And then once a week, come and break bread at the, at the table together. Um, so morning and evening prayer, that sets the table for us as Anglicans. Uh, we listen to God's word um, and we, we pray. And we join not only uh, with ourselves, but we also join with the wider body who is listening to scripture and praying in the morning and at the evening. So he wanted a pattern where the table was set, the knife and the fork as it were, uh, was morning and evening prayer. Um, and then weekly, uh, ideally, um, you'd break bread together um, uh, following the, the New Testament pattern. Um, 
So I would say that was that was a key piece of setting the table. The other thing um, I think is a commitment to um, exposition of Scripture. And again, I would point to um, uh, uh, Michael Jensen's book on this because he talks about how really essential to understanding corporate angling worship the teaching of Scripture was. Um, so um, even if it wasn't everyday morning prayer, uh, the homilies were made available and they were required that people read those homilies. So instruction and teaching the Word was, was uh, essential certainly at the Eucharist once a week. Um, but more than that, that the teaching uh, uh, of the, the three Nairnicles, the, um, uh, the homilies, became part of the tradition, that he, the pattern that he set up um, uh, initially. Yeah. Another tool I'm thinking of is, you know, like like the serving spoons, you know, the, the what gets the, you know, the food from the big platter onto my individual plate. And and for me, that that part of the metaphor feels like um, you know, this this facilitative part of getting it from the larger thing to me. Um can sometimes represent um, our ecclesiology, our um, our episcopy structures. Uh, could you maybe talk about that and what the the service of um, orders and and bishops and constitution and canons and and that uh, what that does in service to the wider body and the wider tradition? Sure. Um, good question. Um, there are many aspects. Of, of of regulating our life that are characteristic of Anglicanism, um, and I right now we're even in some vigorous discussions about uh, the ongoing question of the diocese versus the national uh, provincial church versus a local church, and where where is the center and the and the um, uh, location of of Anglican life. And in recent years with realignment issues and so forth, that's been very much a vigorous debate uh, and topic. But I would argue that we're not congregationalist in the sense that those that would argue, um, and typically, for example, um, uh, those in Sydney, Australia, would argue that the congregational is the primary unit and um, all authority ought to rest in the context of the local congregation. I I don't agree with them on that. although I do think the local congregation is, is crucial. Um, nor do I agree with the pattern that everything should be coming from a, a central headquarters somewhere. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, Lichtenberg, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, wanted to centralize and bring together all the missions agencies, so he did so. And it's been well documented that it effectively killed missions in the Episcopal Church. Um, and so... The notion of trying to centralize everything through one central authority looks tidy, and, and, and but it doesn't work, and, and uh, there's good evidence for that. So where is authority in, in life? It's in the diocese. I would argue that in, in, in Anglican or Episcopal structures, it is located primarily in the uh, local unit of a state or a region, uh, whatever is appropriate to numbers and size. Um, where people can collaborate locally, but you've got enough diversity. So, for example, when I was in Connecticut, uh, we were in suburban uh, Bridgeport, um, and there were 16 parishes in our deanery, as we called them. Here they called districts. Um, But um, we loved our identity there because the inner-city churches that were struggling financially and even in terms of program really leaned on us heavily to support them in that. But we leaned on them heavily to engage us with some of the most important missional elements of our, our region. And, uh, and, and so we cherished the opportunity to reach out and, and have relationships um, in, in that city and throughout the city. Uh, and we were close enough to know them well and get to know them, and they knew us, and we could share our gifts back and forth. And it was a collaborative thing. That can happen in a diocese. I don't think it can happen too closely if you're just in the parish. Some of that, sure. Um, Nor do I think it can happen nationally because, uh, for example, Connecticut's very different than Wisconsin. Wisconsin's very different from Tennessee. Uh, 
fill in whatever region you want, there are going to be different needs for mission in those different contexts. So I think the, the diocese, and one of the things that the constitutions and canons of, of national Anglican bodies do is, is empower the unit of the diocese. Um, in recent years, that's been clipped somewhat. Um, by the Episcopal Church particularly, um, and they they were concerned about dioceses being too independent-minded. Um, and the, in one sense, I would argue that that had more to do with, with the realignment and division than the issues of sexuality. Um, and people aren't aware of that, but it was very much of an issue, for example, of stewardship. And uh, I, I sat in a diocesan convention one time, and the most progressive left-wing leader got up and and uh, supported me and said, we think that the Spirit is, is saying to us that just as we go to our parishioners and base our budgets based on their generosity and discern that, so we ought to do the same thing for our diocesan structure and let's let the Spirit tell us what the budget should be. The bishop was not happy with that discussion, and it was. Uh, he was also a little bit unnerved that his most conservative and his most progressive priests were both saying the same thing, and that really un- unhinged him. Um, um, but um, so, th- so th- those structures are important, and I, our constitutions and canons—they're uh, what they call five titles and uh, four titles. Actually, there's a fifth. Um, but one is the basic structure, and the second is uh, structuring our worship. And that most important piece of that is the fact that it empowers the senior pastor or the rector to make all decisions relative to worship. Um, and that avoids a lot of conflict with musicians. Um, and um, then it, it just finds preparation for ministry and what ministry leadership looks like in Title Three. And then in Title IV, the whole issue of ecclesiastical discipline, how do we handle our problems when we, when we have problems? Um, so that, that pattern um, is, is, is fabulous, I think, and it works. And uh, it's interesting in the realignment, we, we've tweaked things a little bit. Um, the one thing that we have strengthened in the Anglican world, Anglican Church of North America, is the importance and the principle of subsidiarity. And that's pushing the authority down to the local or the lower levels, rather than um, doing it from top down. And um, I, I think that's both expedient, but it's also very wise because then you don't have disjunctures from the top to the bottom. And uh, if the if the top, and that's always been an Anglican principle. And um, in the earliest days of the Episcopal Church, when it was trying to find its identity after leaving the Church of England. Um, that was something that they realized, that the different regions and areas had different needs and different um, expectations. That hasn't changed. Uh, that's still a reality. And, um, and, and so we need to embrace that rather than, than get away from it. So our structure, our structure is important. And I've had many friends, particularly in the Protestant world, who love um, the, the, the coherent authority that is both, you know, connected to the local ministry on the one hand, but also uh, puts it into a wider context in a system where you have sounding boards. And um, accountability. And accountability. And uh, particularly many of my Baptist friends say, oh, we wish we had a bishop. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I understand why they say that. I do too. So lastly, Lori, just thought we would bring this conversation home by asking you just quite simply and directly – why are you Anglican? Why have you devoted so much of your life to the service of this church? Mm, love that question. Uh, 1973, I was a college student on fire with my faith. I was actually leading an ecumenical little group on the college campus of Denison University. And uh, every week to week, I was going to a different church, and I was connecting with the Episcopal Church, I was connecting with the Baptist Church, I was their youth minister, I was uh, attending, uh, we had a good Presbyterian church that gave wonderful um, long lecture sermons um, that I learned a lot from. Um, We had a drug rehab group that was charismatic, um, I will lovingly say charismatic crazies, uh, and they just, you know, were casting out demons at every every turn. And I loved each 
expression of the body. Uh, I loved going to the Southern Baptist Church on Sunday night, and we would sing, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, as we did the final altar call at the end of the evening. I grew to appreciate and love uh, every expression of the body of Christ. Uh, I even loved the Lutherans because they made me work really hard, and just learning what they taught catechism, my admiration was uh, very, very high. Um, so I really did love the different expressions of the body of Christ, but felt God was calling me to leadership. And the question is where and, and in what context. And I came to Sewickley, Pennsylvania to visit a friend. His name was John Howe, um, became the bishop of Central Florida and um, still very much with us. And um, John and his wife, Kari, were were there and and brought me into to St. Stephen's. And I heard John Guest preach a a sermon about the final exam, and were we ready for the final exam? And uh, did a very dramatic altar call using the academic image. Um, and uh, I, I found myself weeping copiously. Um, and, and it was because, uh, that first of all, in terms of the, the distinctives, not the essentials, but the distinctives, th- this was the culture I knew. I grew up in an Episcopal church, and I looked around, and but these people were on fire for Jesus, and they were passionate about proclaiming his story to the world. And yet they did it in a way with dignity and reverence, with a thoughtful theology of grace and the authority of Scripture and justification by faith. And they did it in a way that was relationally connected and pastorally sensitive. And I thought, I'm home. This is where I need to be. This is the family I'm supposed to eat with. And, um, and I, I've never left that feeling. Um, I, I really feel Anglicanism is, is well-connected to all the different dimensions of the body of Christ and has great respect for each and every expression. Um, and at the same time, has a connecting capacity to connect parts of the body. And uh, I, th- I, think, I think we put on a good meal. And I think we're in a place to say y'all come in a way that very, very few, if any, other expressions of the body of Christ can do it in the same way. And um, so I think we're uniquely, we have a unique charism, and uh, we can connect the historic church um, to the Catholic church, to the Reformed church, um, and into the very contemporary and missional church of t- tomorrow. And I, I, I'm a convinced Anglican, and I'm afraid I will be to the day the Lord calls me home. Absolutely you will. We have no doubt about that. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Lori, for being a part of our first episode of the Anglican Curiosities podcast. It has been a joy and a treasure to hear your stories and your perspective. For anybody who is interested in uh, hearing about the books that Lori has mentioned, we are going to put those in the description and the show notes. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Anglican Curiosities podcast. Thanks so much.